Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. So our enemy only has one strategy and it's how many times does Jesus have to say it? Our enemy only has one strategy and it's lies and deception. If you were to do a rough count, how many enemies would you say you had? If you're a Christian, your greatest enemy remains unseen, but he's real and more than happy to employ lies and deception to try and derail you. There is a battle in play for your attention and indeed for your very soul, but it's happening in a realm we can't see and so often we don't think about it. Dr. Corbett is set to explore this spiritual realm and the battle that's in play in a short series. Let's join him now for Spiritual Warfare for Beginners. That and I think just as the uh, Lagana uh, uh, group at the last prayer time for the Wilgrain event was the largest contingent of any church, I think that was fair to say as well today again. So that was, that was awesome. Uh, I hope that's not always the case. In other words, as Lydia prayed, I hope more churches want to get involved with that. That's great. I was listening to a guy, if if you're into watching YouTube podcasts, which is a bit of a phenomenon now, where uh, there are people who video their podcast. um, And I'm, I'm watching a guy by the name of Beckett Cook. And Beckett Cook was uh, someone who was in the Hollywood community. He became a Christian and when he became a Christian, he lost his job because they don't want Christians involved in uh, that, that sphere of Hollywood. He was saying that one of his friends who is also a gay man, although Beckett doesn't describe himself as a gay man now, he describes himself as a Christian and his name is Ryan Murphy, uh, if, I, if I recollect correctly. And Ryan Murphy recently won a contract with Netflix where Netflix ha- have paid him $300 million to produce movies, documentaries and TV series that promote LGBTQ lifestyle. And um, Beckett... Cook was making, uh, just making the point that um, $300 million will get you a lot of uh, cultural influence, as I'm sure you'd appreciate. To do the Will Graham event, we want to do it really, really well. And, and we want, a, well, it's my goal that everybody in Northern Tasmania knows that it's on. I want you to think for a moment as you pray about this, what that is going to do. Are you thinking about protests? Are you thinking about complaints? Are you thinking about name calling? I'm anticipating it. And I'm also hoping that none of us shrink back as a result. I've already had some people shrink back. Well, in fact, I've only had one pastor shrink back, which is, there's nothing unusual about that. Uh, and even uh, the fact that I was on stage with Martin Niles, I've had, I've had um, people shrink back from me now. So it's like, ah, oh, whatever, <laughs> you know. Anyway, 
we, we want to do this thing really, really well, well enough that we're also thinking, because we're going to get these kinds of protests, we're anticipating it, that we want to win the favour of our city in a way that they acknowledge Christians are actually good for our city. I wanted to address the, the, the most uh, needy issue in our culture at the moment, and that, and that is domestic violence, domestic abuse. That's just a little bit too tricky to do because we would be getting um, men and tradesmen in to do sort of a, a you know, clean up, tidy up, renovation of a, maybe of a women's refuge. But that's uh, something that uh, the, the people who run these women's refuges for women fleeing abuse and violence actually don't want a whole lot of men hanging around um, those places, as you could well imagine. So what we're doing is the subsidiary of that. That is the children and, and teen youth who are traumatised as a result of this sort of thing. And that's why we want to uh, uh, dress up nine Kilifaddy Road, which Stephen Hill can tell you about, Launceston City Mission have purchased that to set up as a respite centre for traumatised children and youth. And the, the Billy Graham Tasmanian Celebration team, which I'm a part of, and as a church we're supporting, we are in, boots and all, to make that happen. So um, the fact that we've got to raise a lot of money to do it doesn't scare me at all. In fact, it's when you start to hear words like, oh, you'll never be able to do that, that I go, ah, that sounds like God just walked into the room. It sounds like we've walked into the, the arena of impossible. And if we're in the arena of impossible, we're in the God zone, right? So that's, that's how I think about this. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 26, verse 18. If you haven't got it highlighted or underlined, I encourage you to do this because I would like you to make this a prayer for our city. I would like you to make this a prayer for the people that you think are too hard for God to save. I'd like you to make this a prayer for people who you think are already so close to salvation because they're so good. They're incredibly good. And I'm going to tell you, they are the hardest to win to Christ. And I want us, Acts chapter 26... Verse 18, this is the Apostle Paul declaring what Christ had called him to do. Jesus says, reading from verse 17, delivering you from, from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now, here we go, verse 18, make this our prayer for our city. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of, who does it say? Satan. Satan, to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So tonight I want to talk about spiritual warfare for beginners. So if you feel like you're a beginner in spiritual warfare, you're in the right place tonight because I, I want to make some, uh, what I hope is some profound comments about this. It's, it's subtitled how the forces of darkness, like we just read in that verse, wage vain warfare against the invincible. Who's the invincible? Those who are redeemed by Christ. We are the invincible. Here's what I hope you leave this place tonight having heard. Everything the devil says is a lie. Everything God says is true. 
When we're talking about spiritual warfare, we're talking about the battle between deception and the battle between deception and truth. Our greatest weapon is truth. And I'm here to announce to you, we have truth on our side. Because, as Lex prayed before, the Word of God is truth. I recently had a YouTube commentator pick up on one of my, as Kim has pointed out, one of my uh, Revelation-themed videos called, Is Bill Gates the Antichrist? In which I say, no, he's not. And I've had, I think, 1,254 people not like that video and tell me that I'm going to hell because I don't think Bill Gates is the Antichrist. But one of the last commentators said this, it's clear that he, Dr. Corbett, is wrong. Just look at how many people disagree with him. (laughs) And I'm here to tell you, truth is not democratic. It doesn't take a vote. You can't vote Jesus off the island. It's his island. He is truth. And he said that. And so when you hear about what we're going to talk about tonight, there could be a cold chill that goes down your spine. But if you are redeemed by Christ, if you are filled with his spirit, it should cause you to yawn because you are the invincible. Because when you are in Christ, there's a picture that we could give and and I, I often use my Bible to do it. And if I grab something like this, which is a little prayer I prayed at the start of uh, last year. I've got this written here. But imagine this is us, and imagine this Bible, this big Bible that I've got here is Christ. And here's the really cool thing about the way this works is, when you become a Christian, you are in Christ. So who's Satan going to attack? He's got to get through Christ to get to you. Do you see the picture? So we have great confidence that no matter what the enemy's schemes are against us, He's actually going to have to get through Christ to get to us. Now, does that mean that the enemy can't harass us and and try his best to use others to hinder us? No, that'll happen. But that's a part of, I hope, what we saw this morning when we looked at David. God gave David tremendous promises, tremendous uh, vision of his future. And what was the roadmap like? Uh, Lex prayed before in a a roadmap full of landmines. Well, I'm actually glad we've got the Bible which tells us where the landmines are. And so we can, you know, have a bit of a go at being able to avoid them. And I hope you do avoid them. All right, so I want to firstly establish the reality of the spiritual realm. We live in a culture that that is very, very confused about the supernatural. On the one hand, they'll tell us that our beliefs in a supernaturally inspired Bible, uh, a God who became man, um, born of a virgin, raised from the dead, that is supernatural nonsense. But on the other hand, they'll believe in new age spirituality where they can go into a Zen posture and go transcendental and all. It's a very, very confused culture. They'll believe in Ouija boards. They'll believe in occult. They'll believe in talking to the dead. They'll even do TV shows where they'll feature and celebrate clairvoyance, something that scripture acknowledges the reality of and condemns. But yet they'll say that our spirituality is nonsense. I want you to hear 
Satan's voice behind culture when you hear that. Because, let me remind you, everything he says is a lie. <laughs> so when, when someone is ridiculing you for being a Christian who believes nonsense, we have to realise we are in, as John Bunyan says, a battle for man's soul. That's one of the books that he wrote after Pilgrim's Progress. C.S. Lewis, I was almost going to bring the book in tonight. We've got a, a lovely hardback copy of Screwtape Letters. Has anyone ever read Screwtape Letters? A couple of people here, oh, quite a few. Screwtape Letters is, is an incredibly imaginative um, story that C.S. Lewis tells of a junior evil spirit who is assigned to someone who is dangerously on the brink of becoming a Christian. And in the perspective of the senior demon, um, uh, who, I, I, if I got it around the right way, Wormwood, writing to Screwtape, he, he tells him, watch out for the enemy strategies. And of course, when the devil's saying the enemy strategies, he's, the enemy is God in this instance, if you can get your head around that. And one of the things that he says to this junior demon is, watch out that he doesn't begin to enjoy life because our enemy has given him many things to enjoy. And one of the worst things that you could do is let him enjoy what our enemy has given him to enjoy. That's an amazing insight that God has actually given us lots of things to enjoy. But that language of the enemy, now let's flip it because our enemy, Jesus warned us about. I want to have a look at this. This is Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, and I I took great pains to make sure that with this condensed screen, my, my slides fit on the screen. So I hope you can see that okay. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, of course, are called the, it's the parables of the kingdom. He put another parable before them saying, now this is immediately after he's given the parable of the sower, four types of seed or four types of sowings. And now he says this, another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Matthew 13, 24. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Now, I just point out that when you're interpreting parables, just because a some, an element of a parable is used one way in one parable, it doesn't necessarily mean it's always the same in every other parable. That's just, by the way, when you're reading parables. What we have to look for is, did Jesus offer the interpretation? Which is a pretty safe way to interpret parables. He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them and the enemy who sowed them, Jesus says, this is jumping down to verse 39, and because it's Jesus saying it, we've got a pretty good clue now who the enemy is. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So we've got Jesus, all I want to do is establish this, that Jesus describes our enemy. He calls him the devil. There's going to be some other words that we're going to see that the Bible uses as well. So make no mistake about this. There is a battle. There is a battle. And it is the battle that if you can 
if you can appreciate Acts 26 verse 18, our battle is to bring people out of darkness into light. And another way of saying that is out of deception into the truth. And when you read Colossians chapter 1, that is exactly how Paul describes salvation. To being translated from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Colossians chapter 1. So this is what we need to understand and not be intimidated by it at all. Every believer has a spiritual enemy. So here's my little footnote on that. Not every, based on that, not everything that goes wrong in your life was caused by Satan. Sometimes it's just because things go wrong in my life because I'm stupid at times. I do silly things. <laughs> it's not always the devil there are some people who blame the devil for everything and dare I say it sometimes they blame the devil for their own silliness as well so we've got to be really careful C.S. Lewis said there's two great dangerous extremes here one is to be completely oblivious to the work of the enemy and the other one is to be too obsessed with the devil so this is what what i want to do is is, is give you some confidence because I'm, I'm mindful if we start talking about the enemy and the spiritual warfare we're in that some of you might have nightmares tonight and i, don't, I want you to have sweet dreams tonight so in doing that let's be mindful of what's at stake here the apostle peter said be sober-minded be watchful which means to be prayerful on guard alert your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He's not a roaring lion, but he wants you to think he is. He prowls around like one. You know, it's like the old black and white movie trick. This is a hold-up, you know, the finger in the pocket. You ever seen those movies where they do that? There's no gun there, and it's a bluff, and the devil is a liar. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour so here's the truth. Every believer is a spiritual enemy to the adversary. And by the way, the word adversary is the Hebrew word Satan, which is where we get Satan from in English. You are a threat to the enemy. So I don't want you to get cocky about it because if you do that, you're going to fall into pride and that makes you susceptible to the enemy. So don't do that. It should cause you to worship the one who makes you invincible because it's Christ. This is what Jesus said about the devil, the adversary, our enemy. This is John chapter 8, verse 44. And he was speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes. And this should tell us that being right with God is not a matter of being religious, as some people called universalists claim. They claim that God has saved everyone, it's just that everyone doesn't know it. But that can't be right, because things like this that Jesus said about very, very, very religious people. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar 
and the father of lies. Hmm. I don't think we are left wondering what Jesus is saying here. So our enemy only has one strategy and it's how many times does Jesus have to say it? Our enemy only has one strategy and it's lies and deception. He will speak lies. And there's lots of evidence of the enemy having his way in culture right now because of the amazing lies that people are prepared to accept as true when they're patently, obviously not true. That tells us right there that we are in warfare. I'm, I've not read the Lord of the Rings books. Has anyone read the Lord of the Rings books? I've done the next best thing and watched the movies. You've read the books. Well done, Theoden, the king. He's blah, blah, blah. And he doesn't realise that his kingdom in Middle-earth is about to be overrun by the orcs, who are the agents of the dark powers. Gandalf comes and pleads with him, you need to muster your army, you need to get ready. And Theoden is like, he's just oblivious. And Gandalf does something very rare in the Lord of the Rings movie. He's a wizard. Don't get freaked out by that word. It's Middle Earth, by the way. There is no such thing as Middle Earth. It's all made up, just by the way. And Gandalf takes his staff and he goes, he, he, he kind of yells at, at, at Theoden to wake up. And suddenly things go like a wave out of this thing and Theoden gets hit by this wave and snap, he wakes up. The curse of sleep. He looked awake. He functioned like he was awake, but he was asleep to what was actually happening. And he wakes up. And that's when he realises the plight that he's in. The enemy has been taking ground and he has been letting the enemy get away with it. There's a great analogy here for us, the church. Martin Isles, when I spoke to him at our evangelism conference, and I said, if you could have God do one thing, what would you have him do? And he said this, wake the sleeping giant up. Who's the sleeping giant? The church. So we need to realise that when we pray, we are entering into spiritual warfare. And here's what I want you to really, really grasp. We do not pray to Satan. We do not speak to Satan when we pray. And I've heard well-meaning but s s interesting Christians <laughs> speak to Satan when they pray. They'll say things like this. Oh, Father, we, we just need your help. So Satan, we... Who are they talking to now? Because suddenly they were, were talking to God about three seconds ago. Now they're... And Satan, we bind you. We cast you out. We blah, blah. We declare. We declare. Wow. Like, can I just point out, we're not the ones who declare anything. God is the one who declares and ordains and decrees. We beseech him and there is something incredibly powerful yet very mysterious about it and here's what i want us to do 
I want us to apprehend without even necessarily comprehending what's happening when we pray to God. Do you hear the difference? Apprehend means we don't understand how it works, but we know it works. So let's just do it. So you might be here going, oh, I don't know if I should really get into this prayer thing because I don't quite understand how it all works. Don't worry about that. The enemy's at the gate. Let's just do it because it works. And what are we saying? It works. You heard me this morning say a lot of Christians treat prayer as if it's some kind of magic to make God do what they want him to do. And that is paganism, not biblical prayer. Biblical prayer is where we enter into the government of the universe with God by praying that God's will be done. Listen to the Lord's prayer that Jesus gave us. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's what he told us to pray. So here's what I, I want to I pose a little background sidetrack now. A little, let's just go off the path for a minute and sit down and have a chat about this moment. So to do that, I want to go back to where Satan is introduced in Scripture, and that's in Genesis 3. We'd all know this account. We went through it last week, but let me just remind you of it. Now, all the week four. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and the Lord God uh, that the Lord God had made. Hmm, that's odd. That's an odd description. No other animals described. So this tells us straight away, Scripture is telling us something that is not just about zoology it's telling us something spiritual this serpent is not just an animal there is something deeply occultic spiritual about this creature he said to the woman now straight away a talking serpent you've got to know that this is telling us again i'm just going to repeat myself there is something occultic spiritual about what we're reading now and to our western minds that's odd but there are some cultures where they understand that this world is actually a supernatural world where where weird things happen and we try and kid ourselves that they don't but here we go he said to the woman did god actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden now before we proceed did God actually say that? This is not hard. Well, you, you can eat of all the trees except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So, so the answer is yes. But note what, what the answer is. You shall not eat of this tree. Have I misrepresented anything? I mean, we're not diving into the text to look at it exactly, but, but that's, that was it, right? That's it. I'm not trying to play any tricks here. And Satan has simply, or sorry, the serpent has simply challenged, is that actually what he said? We should not find this hard because that is actually what God said. Don't eat of that tree. All right. We call that doubt. You question yourself. Now, I want you to listen to the woman because her response is not true. Listen to this. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God say that? No, he didn't actually, the record of Genesis 2 is not that. He didn't say that. So you can see what's happening here. And if we had the time, we'd dive into why people 
make God's word say something that God's word doesn't actually say. It brings confusion. This is a part of the enemy's strategy to deceive. But the serpent said to the woman, here comes the lie, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the rest is, as they say, history. I just want to pause here for a moment. And I, I want to, having said that the woman imposed something out of what she, what she claimed was the word of God, which actually was not the word of God. And I want us, as we're sitting on this bench, as we've taken a little sidetrack off the main path for a moment, I want us to be very careful that we don't do what that woman did. Make God's word say something that it doesn't actually say. There are lots of things that Christians claim God's word says. Well, no, sorry, not lots. There are some things that Christians claim that God's word says whatever. And it doesn't actually say it. The one that I think of immediately that I think's done a lot of damage is God's word says that the universe is 6,000 years old. You know how many people have walked away from Christianity? How many young people have walked away from Christianity? How many people have heard that and said, that is nonsense. If that's what your Bible says, oh, I'm, not, I'm not accepting that at all. Where does it say that? And that's the, that's the question that I think we need to ask. This week, I was with a young man as I'm mentoring a few young men through the week now. And, and he, made, he made a statement about something in the scripture. And I just said, just, sorry, where'd you get that? That was my question. Where does it say that? Where did you get that from? And he said, well, it's in the Bible. I said, sure, we've got time. Show me. And we're looking at the Bible. And I, and I said, you know what? We could just cut to the chase. And I could tell you, it doesn't say that. It's not there. So let's be very, very careful. All right, there's my preface. Now let me raise this with you. Where did Satan come from? Don't answer the question just yet. I'm just posing the question. Where did Satan come from? There's a couple of texts that I was taught talk about the origin of Satan. One is Isaiah 14, another one's Ezekiel 27 or so. And, and one addresses, one of those texts addresses the king of Babylon, another one addresses the king of Tyre. I'm going to give you a radical reinterpretation of both of those chapters. I think the chapter that addresses the king of Babylon actually is about the king of Babylon. That's my radical reinterpretation of that text. The one that says it's speaking about the king of Tyre, I'm going to suggest is actually about the king of Tyre, not Satan. So here's the problem. Where do we go to find out where Satan come from? Where do we go? We're actually going to have a problem that, that sounds something like this. The Bible doesn't necessarily tell us where he's come from so what does that what does that mean we should do because god's word is sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness eternal life and deliver godly life and if it doesn't tell us where satan came from then what is that telling us 
we probably don't need to know. That's, that's my, my profound point tonight. We probably don't need to know. Here's the next question. Where do demons come from? Because, preface this by the comment that Kim made that I've spent a lot of time in the book of Revelation. And, and perhaps some of us have been taught that demons are fallen angels. Here's my question. Where does it say that? Here's my next question. Are you saying that the angels that God created to worship him, and by the way, angel is not a description of a being. Angel is what they do. An angel is a messenger. That's what the word angel means, messenger. I'm going to use a different term. I'm going to use the term heavenly creatures, heavenly beings. They're created heavenly beings. They are in the heavenly realm. Are you saying that these created heavenly beings, one third of them, of which there's a lot, involuntarily, they had no say in it, they involuntarily were taken out of heaven by Satan against their will and they became demons against their will. Does that sound reasonable to anyone? And I'm wanting to say it's based on a misreading of Revelation chapter 12 where it says that when the Christ child was born, and we know it's the Christ child because it says he's the one that the woman gave birth to and he shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. And then it says he, he, he ascended to heaven. So redemption's kind of tick. And it says the dragon was cast out of heaven and with its tail swept a third of the stars from the heavens. And that's the entire foundational verse for the idea that the devil took by force a third of God's angels and forced them to become demons. Now, there's a, there is just a massive problem here. Notice the time frame of when that was supposed to have happened. After Jesus has ascended. Well, hang on a minute. <laughs> hang on. Who's this snake? <laughs> Where'd he come from? If that all happened after Jesus ascended. Do you see the problem? So... Where do demons come from? Here's, here's the answer. I don't exactly know. And the, and the reason I don't exactly know is because Scripture doesn't exactly say, therefore what? Therefore, God wants us to know a lot about something and not much about something other. He wants us to know a lot about him, how to have peace with him, how to be reconciled to him, how to live a God-pleasing life, because this is, after all, sufficient for life and godliness, the word of God. So, this is what we do know about Satan and demons. By the, word, that, by the way, that word demon is a word that came out of the exile. It was used by the uh, Assyrians and it became the word that the Bible used after they came back from exile. That's just by the way. We know this, Satan is a created being. I, I've, I've had, this is another lie of Satan. You know the yin and yang symbol? Some people say, yeah, that really highlights the conflict between light and darkness, equal light, equal darkness. What's another word for twangers? Whatever that word is, that, it is no contest between God 
and Satan. There's no contest. It's not equal forces of light against equal opposite darkness. That's just not true. Satanic beings are creatures who are created originally by God to assist mankind. How do we know that? A couple of things we know that by. One is when Adam and Eve sinned, or at that time they were known as man and woman, when they sinned, they were cast out of the east gate of Eden. When they were cast out of the east gate of Eden, what happened to that east gate? Anyone know? Did someone say God assigned cherubims there to guard it? Yeah. Adam could see them. Adam didn't flinch. It seems like Adam was accustomed to seeing heavenly beings. Like it was past the salt, you know, like it was common. And he could see these heavenly creatures guarding the east gate, forbidding him from coming back in. It also tells us that these heavenly creatures had the capacity to be, here's the word, visible to us. That's the first thing. There was an interaction between some type of heavenly creatures and mankind. The other thing we see from scripture is we look at references, for example, in Isaiah chapter 6, is that we see heaven is full of heavenly creatures that, that don't fit the hallmark greeting card pictures of angels at Christmas time. For example, these things called seraphs and the Hebrew plural seraphim. They are massive. They are massive. I mean, they are, let me use another word, massive. <laughs> because they are over the throne of God, two wings covering their eyes because they're not worthy to look at God's immediate presence. With two wings, they cover their feet because they're not allowed, it, it, it's, they're unworthy to stand in his presence. So they're covering their feet as a symbol of we're not worthy to stand in your presence. And with two, they, they hover over God's presence, leading all of heaven in worship. How do we know that? Because they are declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And by the way, when they declare it, it sounds like singing. There's no reference in scripture to angels singing, but we know they do. So that sounds like they're created to do this thing. It's just what they do. Praise God, we don't do that. We talk, and then we can sing. So that's the first thing. These, these creatures are huge. Another verse to, to sort of get us thinking about this is Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3 talk about these creatures that have how many faces? Four faces. One head, four faces. Don't tell me that's not weird. The face of a lion, the face of a man, the face of an eagle, and the face of a bullock, an ox. That's got to be weird, right? But it's even weirder because they're huge. And when they move, everything shakes underneath them, even though they're not touching it. Don't tell me that's not weird. It says they're surrounded in, a, in, a, in like a wheel. 
It's Ezekiel's description. A wheel. But that wheel was covered with another wheel. And when God moves, and these are like the, the if you, this, please don't strike me with a lightning bolt for saying this, but, but these guys are like the secret service protectors of God. They, 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 they move with him. When he goes, they move. But they never have to turn because four faces, they are always following him no matter where he goes. They never turn. And that's what it says, they never turn. And these creatures are huge. The fact that the seraphim can be seen from the furthest point in heaven tells you just how big they are. Massive. The fact that these creatures in, in Ezekiel 2 and 3 were probably cherubs blows Hallmark Valentine's Day cards out of the water. So huge. And the fact that God had created some of these creatures whom all of these creatures were called his, I'm going to use the term, his heavenly family. Because God has always been a father. And he created these beings as his heavenly family. And here's the weird thing. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 8. These creatures are called his children, his sons. And it says this. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. What? And we see in Daniel chapter 10, he, he called some of these creatures princes over nations. Do you remember Daniel chapter 10 when Daniel's praying? He's praying for the word of God to be fulfilled. From Daniel chapter 9 we read, Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah that the 70 years would be fulfilled, then they'd be set free. He says, so I began to pray that scripture, by the way. And Gabriel comes and says, I was delayed because the prince of Persia withstood me. But Michael, your prince, came to my aid. So we've got this incredible picture of what these creatures that God created were meant to do. And some of them, Genesis 6 tells us, left their obedience to God and defiled themselves. Some of these creatures became so incredibly corrupted that God decreed that they should be locked up immediately. And that's what it says in Jude chapter 6. And the angels, or heavenly creatures, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling... He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, quotes that, it's, that, quotes that verse exactly as well. So God ordained that some of these powerful, corrupted heavenly beings would be restrained and the rest he has let do what they do. But they are doomed. And they are doomed until what Romans chapter 9 calls the fullness of of the Gentiles coming in or the fullness of all those that God has planned to come into his kingdom come in. And that happens through the preaching of the gospel. And when that is, when that is done in God's mind, when his redemptive plan for mankind has expired now because it's been fulfilled, we can see 
why these creatures are so, these demonic, evil creatures want one thing. They want us to stop advancing God's redemptive plan. Because they know when they do, their doom is certain. So Paul could say this, 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 17 and 18. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. And we had time, we'd go, well, Satan was a dope because Paul was imprisoned and he preached to all in prison and people got saved there as well. Amazing. And Paul wrote epistles because he was in prison. So everything Satan does backfires on him. Don't you love it? Therefore rejoice, Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. This is that dragon and tail bit. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. His time is short. Our enemy, we need to know this, is already a defeated foe whose doom is absolutely divinely decreed. And this is what it says in the judgment chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan's doom is decreed and it will happen when God's redemptive plan comes to an end. Here's the therefore. Therefore, let us further the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, through prayer and the proclamation of the truth. Would you please stand? Father, I pray that you help us to further your cause, your redemptive plan, through prayer. May Acts 26 verse 18 become our prayer for our state, our prayer for our nation, our prayer for our city and our valley. And Father, I pray that you would give us opportunity to proclaim the truth, that Lord, the eyes of people who currently are blinded in darkness would come to the light and to the knowledge of truth. Father, may we know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. As we've heard tonight, satanic beings were originally created by God to assist mankind, but they became corrupted and enemies of God. They might be powerful, but they still don't outdo God himself. Don't worry, their doom has been divinely decreed. More from Dr. Corbett next week on Spiritual Warfare. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.